The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagan. Presenting Season 9, Avalanche. Find a Way, Part 1. Written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. The last few days had been a whirlwind of action for John and Sarah. From the assault on Ultima Thule, their near defeat and final victory there, to being immediately thrust back into the real world of Atlanta as soon as they were conscious enough to be shoved onto an Echo transport plane, there hadn't been a moment to pause for a breath. It all seemed entirely too surreal. One moment fighting for their lives in a strange recreation of Nazi paradise. Collapsing, thinking that they were dead. At least they had fought on to the end, trying to save as many as they could, and then being saved themselves at the last moment by the medicines. There had been the arguments and meetings afterwards, what to do with the prisoners, how to split up the spoils of war in terms of recovered Thulean tech and materials, and so on. Bella and the Commissar both had thought it best that John and Sarah get back to Atlanta, to HQ, Stat. An uncomfortable amount of those arguments had been what to do with John and Sarah themselves. The troops on the ground were, for the most part, thankful, or just in awe, of what had happened during the fighting. The top brass, however, they conveyed fear, envy, and worst of all, greed, when it came to just who was going to be able to call on the fiery duo. Three of the seven deadly sins, if John's memory was correct. Of course, his memory might not have been He'd never been all that conversant in religion before, and Sarah didn't seem inclined to spout Bible verses and doctrine, so much as cryptic responses or things that were, well, more universal than biblical. All the same, the feeling in the air back at Ultima Thule was decidedly not friendly for John and Sarah, so back to Atlanta it was. Even their comrades had been on edge, until Old Man Bear had broken the tension. Since then, things had been more relaxed at HQ. There had been another thing John was contending with. He was picking up on the emotions of others, and not just in a natural, able-to-read-people sort of way. He could actually feel what others were feeling sometimes, It had taken his breath away, the first time, and still rocked him to his core whenever it happened now. But he was getting used to it, with Sarah's help. He wasn't surprised when it happened so much anymore. He was beginning to be able to control when he let the emotions of others in. It was still the depth of it all that overwhelmed him, maybe because he was used to regulating his own emotions and was habituated over his life to react to them. With other people, it wasn't so much as colors mixing and melding, as much as it was two different strains of music coming together, and not always in harmony. It was the best way that he could think to describe it. Some people were a lot easier to be around. All the healers and empaths, for instance— Shielding other people out meant they kept their own emotions in. Bulwark, strangely, was completely unreadable. John figured it might have been an extension of his other powers, but didn't have much of a chance to pursue the answer to that question. And then there was Vicky, who had some sort of barrier of her own. She wasn't a psychic of any sort, so it had to be magic. He still got the heebie-jeebies when it came to magic, despite how much of his gear, 
even his HUD and Overwatch rig, ran on it. John kind of wondered how the heck that worked, though. Magical-slash-emotional shielding. He hadn't even gotten anything out of her when he'd inadvertently zapped her, and you'd have thought being hit by a celestial bitch-slap would have made her feel pretty damn strongly. But the only time she'd slipped was when she'd thought about Red Genie. That had been a painful exchange. He and Sarah both had been lapped by waves of grief and longing that had come off of Vicky. It was only Sarah's moderating influence, John suspected, that kept him from being completely overwhelmed. He did his best trying to counsel her and comfort her without being patronizing. He'd had enough experience with doing that when he was still big army, being a team leader and helping the Joes under his command. Still, she seemed mired in her own pain. It particularly stung him in that it reminded him of when Sarah was going through her own trials while his memory was gone. In the end, Vicky had closed up, those weird shields of her own coming up, and completely cutting off the feed of her emotions to John and Sarah. She said she was fine, but it was clear that she just wanted to end the interaction. It was probably for the best. Pushing things too far, too fast, would have more than likely been counterproductive. She was his friend, and he would offer her whatever help he could give, but she still had to find her own way in the end. Besides the troubles that Vic was going through, something else had stuck out to John about that night. When she had tried to do her magic reading on him to determine if he was going to be a danger to others, something now intimately a part of him had reacted badly before he was even aware of it. Celestial. That had been the word that she was trying to finish when she got thrown into a wall by whatever defensive impulse was building before I clamped down on it. He'd done his best to seem nonchalant about it, but in reality, he was scared to death. It only got worse after he saw the raw, unedited footage of himself and Sarah during the fighting in Ultima Thule. Although he had been there, and had done all of those things, seeing it from the outside perspective, what it must have looked like to other people, that more than anything, shook him up. They were awesome and terrifying. More than anything, the footage conveyed to him how fast they were together. The amount of destruction they could dish out in a short amount of time was staggering. John had seen artillery and experienced it on the wrong end and air power and those two things were frightening enough. But that wasn't just a single person, or even a couple, that were capable of those things. It was teams of people, coupled with technology and entire logistical trains. Take one piece out of that puzzle, and it all fell apart. The footage drove home that John and Sarah were a power unto themselves, and a different one from anything the world had seen so far. And so, John was frightened. There was temptation to look at the footage again. Easy enough to do, since he and Sarah were officially on detached duty, playing Vicky's bodyguards while the VIPs and select Echo leads were in Metis itself. All he had to do was give Overwatch a couple of commands, and he could view it again as many times as he wanted. But there was fear, and even a little revulsion, too. He had detonated bombs that had leveled entire buildings, and called in airstrikes that had done the same, or more. 
he had once cooked an entire hangar filled with Kriegers and Krieger armor. When he had seen what he and Sarah had been capable of, when they were completely drained, it was beyond. He didn't want to be, well, that, whatever that was, tapped into raw, unfettered power. It set them apart in a way very few metahumans had been before. And the world hadn't been kind to those metas. Sarah interrupted his musings with a cup of hot tea. You are troubled, she said simply, sitting down beside him. May I help? They were sitting on the couch, back in Vicky's apartment again, generally taking up space and making sure she had whatever help she needed. Most of the time, Gray and Herb already had Vicky's needs taken care of, so John and Sarah spent their time talking, drinking tea, and keeping an eye out for... anything. He did his best to smile wanly. I imagine you're the only one that could, darling. He took his cup of tea, transferring it to his left hand before pulling her closer with his right. Guess I can't hide anything from you. She blinked at him, slowly. You could, if you chose. I am glad that you do not choose to do so. What troubles you so? John thought for a few moments. Me. You. Us. All of... this. Effortlessly, he called flame to the arm that was wrapped around her. He already knew that their fires could never hurt each other. The ease with which he could call his fires, now, and keep them going... Before, control had been his biggest issue. He had learned breathing exercises, even meditation, to keep his fires from going nova on him. Every time he had decided to use his flames before his... transformation, he had needed immense concentration to prevent the fire from ramping up and going wild, like it had when he had escaped from the facility. He'd been close to losing it like that a few times. If it hadn't been for Vicky, he would have probably unintentionally cooked his friends and teammates alive by accident a couple of those times. It's a lot to deal with. That and the... other stuff. The futures, our battle sense, feeling things and being able to just about read people's thoughts. I don't know how you did it all on your own. To his relief, she laughed a little. Because I was not human, beloved. I could not handle it alone now. Well, there is that, I suppose. He shook his head. Still... How are we going to deal with it now? I mean, what can we do with all of this power? It's making my head spin, if I'm being honest. Her brows creased as she thought, and there was some uncertainty in her voice. I moderate what you can do. I am the... The gauge through which the power flows. Vicky was right. We have mapped the limits of our abilities. They're at Ultima Thule. That is as much as we can bear. Attempts to manipulate more will... Not end well. She offered a tentative attempt at a smile... I sense this does not comfort you. 
he shrugged, pecking her on the cheek. It was a good try. He sighed heavily. I figure we'll just have to play it by ear. Being mere mortals, we'll do the best that we can. They could hear Vicky talking in the next room, but not what she was saying. She was probably on private mode to Bella or Nat, or one of the other Echo or CCCP leads that were in Metis. Gray was nowhere in sight, which meant he was probably sitting on one of Vicky's desks, kibitzing. Herb was toddling across the floor with one of Vicky's meals in a can. John could swear it looked like the little rock man was bigger every time he saw him. How do you grow a pet rock? There wasn't much of a view out the window. The living room window looked directly into the canopy of a huge live oak tree. The tree's proximity made coming in that way, at least for J.M. and Sarah, a bit of a trick. It was a rare moment of peace, although John mistrusted it for that very reason. They were playing bodyguard on Vicky for a reason, after all. Just because her role as creator and implementer of Overwatch 2 was only known by a handful of people, it was a bigger handful than John liked. So far as he was concerned, they were long past the critical mass it would take for the secret to somehow leak. Three people could keep a secret if two of them were dead, as the old saying went. Sometimes he thought even that was too many, with some secrets. The danger to Vicky wasn't just from supposed allies or other interested parties. The Thulians, including at least Ubermensch and Valkyria, that got away from Ultima Thule were at the top of the list. They, and the huge techno-dragon that they rode out on, were still very much a threat. Taking out Vicky would, despite the backups and contingencies that she had in place, be a huge blow for the global resistance against the Kriegers, one that they couldn't afford to risk. You know, it's about time to start thinking about dinner. Vicky has those god-awful canned meals. Haven't eaten my fair share. I know how bad they can be. But I figure we need some real chow. What are you feeling like, darling? If they couldn't decide, there was always little Thea. She always had something on the stove, hot and ready to be ladled out to hungry comrades after a shift. Is there a food truck near? She asked, with a note of longing. He chuckled. Atlanta had some very good food trucks, still running despite shortages and the odd Thulian, or gang attack, and John had gotten Sarah addicted to the variety. I'll ask over, he began. Then... It felt like a bomb went off inside of his skull, while a dozen sledgehammers were pounding it in from the outside. Almost at the same time, he and Sarah were both on the floor, frozen. He could barely see Sarah's face, and her eyes were almost completely rolled up in their sockets. He felt his own vision go dark, then stark white as something shot in like a lightning bolt through the pane. Dimly, he heard Vicky yelling, not at him or at Sarah, but into her overwatch gear. Something's bad. Wrong. He knew, though he didn't know how, that it wasn't a dream or a hallucination, but a vision of something that was actually happening, right then. Fire, screaming and death, explosions and people being crushed by falling rubble, 
actinic beams of energy, and the thunderous stomp of thousands of armored boots. And finally, a gigantic dragon, roaring and glaring hatefully at everything below it. Metis was falling, and there was nothing that they could do about it. When he and Sarah came to, again almost at the exact same time, he first noticed that his fingernails had dug deep, red furrows into his palms, and his jaw was sore. He must have been clenching it or grinding his teeth. Their cups of tea had shattered when they had hit the floor, and the couch had been kicked away, either by him or Sarah. He didn't know, but it was now very misshapen and piled against the far wall. Johnny! Sarah! Vicky was shouting, not via his overwatch rig, but physically from the other room. Are you okay? Without waiting for an answer, she continued. The Thulians found Metis, and things just went nuclear foobar. It took John a few seconds to form words. It felt like his tongue couldn't find purchase in his mouth, and he kept slurring and mumbling. He could see, and feel, Sarah struggling just as he was. We... we're fine, Vicky. We're feeling it happen. John, much more slowly than he would have liked, pulled himself to his feet. He swayed for a moment, thinking he was going to pass out. It was like his blood pressure had just taken a dive, and he felt light-hatted. Then it passed, and he was steady again. He helped Sarah to her feet. Once he was sure that she was okay, they both started towards Vicky's workroom. We saw it, Vic. This isn't just an attack. It's extermination. They need to get as many people out as possible, and goddamned fast. On it, she shouted tersely. They had staggered to the door of her Overwatch suite. There were camera feeds from Bella, Bull, Ramona, Pride, Nat, and Moji. Is there any Lala Angel way you guys can get there? She asked through gritted teeth, as her fingers flew over her keyboard. Darlin? John looked to Sarah. Even with how fast they could fly, which was pretty goddamned fast, all things considered. It'd still take them hours to get to meet us. Hours that meet us didn't have. They both realized this, and Sarah confirmed it when she shook her head gravely. Negative, comrade. Unless you've got some sort of rabbit you can pull out of your hat and get us there like you got us out of the Himalayas. We're not getting to meet us before the show's over. She swore. No, there's no landing pad and no time for anyone to put one down for me. They need you. I... Hey, you ain't wrong. But they also need us here. Covering you so you can cover them. That's our job right now, and it's the one we're in a position to do. We don't know what else these shifty bastards have up their sleeves. If they start striking anywhere else... We need to be ready to pounce on that shit. So keep on keeping on, comrade. All right? John didn't mean to use the command voice, but it sort of came through. They needed Vicky to do what she did best, now more than ever. If she was distracted, it could mean someone died. Maybe a lot of someones. People they knew. People they all loved. And, as much as it hurt him to put it before all of that, people that mattered to the future. She nodded curtly and kept her eyes on the monitors, her hands flying over the keyboard, muttering into her own microphone. Wordlessly, John and Sarah both withdrew to the doorway. They both knew that she had to be extra vigilant, especially now. John was the first to speak. 
I wasn't lying in there. She's our first priority. We're in the best position to protect her. And she's important. Vic is a force multiplier. And having her active keeps more of our people alive. Sarah nodded, and glints of gold began to form deep in her eyes. She cannot watch here and there at the same time. We must be the watchers here. John held his hands out, palm up. Tell me what to do, darling. I'm with you all the way. Remember how it felt to know what our foes were about to do? Be that again. Then stretch out your wings and feel the wind of now uplift them until you can see all of the city. She placed her hands atop his and he allowed her senses to guide his. John felt things go still around the two of them. Time slowed down, and the world around them became dim for a moment. Then it was as if the world was moving, and they weren't connected to it anymore. In a few instants, the seasons changed a thousand times, the sun and moon had risen and set in a strobe, and then everything snapped back like a rubber band to now. John watched as Vicky's apartment was at first frozen, then started to vibrate, like a film going off reel. It was jarring when it settled back, as if nothing had happened. Slowly, Blurred and ghostly versions of himself and Sarah started walking through the apartment, going in different directions. First, there were just two. Then four. Then eight. Then sixteen. The blurred copies kept multiplying until it looked like there were super-fast streams of motion moving through the entire apartment. They are our possibilities. He knew without actually knowing that it was Sarah's voice guiding him. Slowly, his comprehension of the scene expanded outward from the apartment. First, to the floor they were on, then to the building, then the block, and so on until he had the entire city in his mind. He knew that Sarah was seeing the same thing he was, in perfect clarity. It looked like rivers of golden and blue light running between the buildings and on the streets. He realized that those rivers were comprised of the lives and possible futures of everyone that lived in Atlanta. Very gradually, at certain intersections of the rivers and eddies, he saw... Myers... Spots where futures ended, cut short, or drastically altered. With a gasp that took place in neither time nor space, he realized that those were people dying from violence, or otherwise being harmed. Or rather, that they would be. He also started to feel all of the emotions of those people, their lives, their futures, even the emotions of those that would die. John felt all of it welling up in him, threatening to spill over. He felt like a kettle, ready to boil over, like the top of his head was going to pop off. It was too much. He felt his own panic behind it all, all the love, pain, death, life, hate, Joy, anger, jealousy, sadness, it was everything and all at once. Peace. Be still, he heard in his heart. And it was as if there was a volume control, and she had turned it down. He could still feel all these things, 
but now they were like a sort of dissonant music playing in the background. He settled, and felt himself calming down. He felt shaken. It was like brushing too close with madness, losing his sense of self and succumbing to whatever all of that had been. Breathing without breathing, he regained his composure. Now he could see the potentials, without being drawn in with them, focusing on the individual threads. It wasn't quite omniscience, he imagined, offhandedly in the back of his mind, that it must be somewhat like what Gamayun could do. He also knew that they couldn't do this forever. It was taxing, extending their senses out this far, and they wouldn't be able to maintain it forever. I could. Once. But he didn't sense regret or loss behind Sarah's thought, only a feeling of, that was then, this is now. He felt her doing something he could only think of as sorting. Like someone going through a basket of colored threads and looking for the ones that ended in a particular color. And sensed then that she was not finding what she was looking for. I am looking for great danger, she answered the unspoken question. It is not here. Not now. Not here soon. But... John felt himself returning to a certain point, a certain place. It was there in Vicky's apartment. And now. Not something soon to come, but something happening. It was as if he and Sarah had returned from a fugue state. Their heads snapped as one to stare at one of Vicky's monitors. It was glowing brightly in gold and blue, standing out against everything else. Then the effect ended, and they were fully back in the present. Something is happening. Right now, Vic. He and Sarah both strode towards Vicky's battle station, on either side of her chair. There. Sarah said, pointing at the monitor. It was the one with Molotov's overwatch feed. He had just run out from a hallway that terminated onto the entrance to a landing pad, cantilevered over empty space. The view was beautiful, save for over a dozen supernauts in their bulky armor, armed with arm-mounted machine guns and flamethrowers. At the very end of the landing pad stood Worker's Champion, cradling a box. As one, they all seemed to turn to face Molotov. There were a few tense seconds of silence. Moji called something out in Russian. What came in John's ears was the usual Russian gibberish. But somehow, through his connection with Sarah, he understood the sense of it. You have blood crimes to repay, uncle. If you surrender, I'll make sure you don't suffer. It is better than what anyone else will offer you for betraying your family, country, your world, your very comrades. I will not make the offer a second time, as it is more than you deserve already. It is an offer you cannot deliver. Boy. Worker's champion's face was utterly devoid of anything approaching emotion. Even his delivery was carefully modulated, betraying not the slightest hint of what he might be really thinking or feeling. If only you understood. Fuck you. Understand? Others may want to understand why you are a traitor. I do not. I only see an enemy of my people. I kill my people's enemies. It is what good soldiers do, you swine. 
Spare me your words, and die like a goddamned Russian. Worker's champion nodded once, still stony-faced and cold. So be it. With that, all of the supernauts raised their weapons. They would have been better off if they had turned their machine guns, grenade launchers, and flamethrowers on themselves. Molotov didn't even bother to dodge their attacks. He marched determinedly from one supernaut soldier to another. Explosions went off around and even on his body, detonating harmlessly. Bullets bounced away and ricocheted in oblique angles from his body, sometimes going back towards the supernauts that had fired the rounds. And the superheated napalm that struck Molotov simply dripped off of him. Looking through the Overwatch camera that was from his point of view, and from the ones that were hovering in the vicinity, he looked like a wrathful god come to exact vengeance. He was an expert at Sistema and several other martial arts. He didn't use any of his expertise as he fought the supernauts. He would just walk up to one, grab the armored soldier by his limbs, and rip him apart. Sometimes he would take the supernaut's head off with a backhanded strike, other times pulling an arm and a leg off and casting them aside casually, or splitting a soldier in half like a man pulling apart a wishbone. It was awful and awesome in the unceremonious brutality of it all. The final supernaut was quivering in place. He had expended all of his munitions, and his arm-mounted machine guns, grenade launchers, and flamethrowers all clicked and hissed empty. Pulling a bayonet from his boot, Molotov calmly walked up to the armored soldier, grabbing him by the back of his helmet before pulling his head onto the bayonet. The soldier gave a final startled shriek before falling to the ground, still twitching, with the grip of the bayonet sticking out from his helmet's eye-slit. Most of the napalm had gone out by that time. Molotov's suit was ruined in several places, but the skin underneath was untouched. His chest heaved, not from exertion, but from unbridled rage. Worker's champion had stood, watching the entire gruesome slaughter. Now, he set down the box he had been carrying and faced Molotov. There was a standoff that, while only a few seconds long, seemed to last an eternity before Molotov screamed. Fascista! Now all of Molotov's finesse as a fighter was evident. For metahumans with super strength and resilience, the two often seemed to manifest together, for obvious reasons that a meta that was super strong, but couldn't withstand the stresses of what he was using it for, wouldn't live very long. Most of them relied on those abilities to simply power through their opponents. Molotov was not one of those metahumans. He had been taught and learned, from a young age, to fight as if he was weak, as if he was fragile, to marshal his strength, to protect himself from every strike as if it might be fatal, to strike where the enemy was weak, and defend from where he was strong. As he attacked Worker's Champion, he did so with perfect form, graceful and blindingly fast, precise with every blow and measured with every defense. He was beautiful. And he was doomed. Worker's Champion had none of his protégé's flourish or artistry, but he did have power. He didn't need to outmaneuver Molotov. Even the most skillful strike, he simply cut through, using his own strength and nearly impervious skin to best the younger man. It was tragic. Molotov, no matter what injury he took, continued to attack. 
First, it was a split lip. Then, a mashed eye. A broken finger. A hand. An arm. His ankle. A dislocated shoulder. All the ribs on one side cracked. Teeth on the right side of his mouth shattered to splinters. But still, Molotok fought. Mustering the very last of his strength, he finally connected a solid blow to Worker's Champion's mouth. The sound of the impact was indescribable, like steel meeting steel with the force of a dynamite explosion. Molotok's last good hand was ruined, bleeding bones jutting from skin and fingers turned all the wrong way. But Worker's Champion was bleeding. Three thin lines of blood crept down his lips. The blood was his own, and for a moment his eyes grew wide at the sight of it on the back of his hand as he wiped it away. With a flick of the back of his hand, Worker's Champion shattered the bones in Molotov's remaining arm, ensuring he couldn't even lift it any more. Molotov fell to his knees, very obviously struggling to stay conscious. John felt so helpless, and it infuriated him. His fists were bald, his knuckles white in impotent fury. If only we were there! There was a sound like the rush of wind while manning the doorgun on a helo, diving on an LZ. Suddenly, John found himself not looking at a monitor and seeing through a camera, but feeling through Molotov. There was so much pain. The physical was there, and almost blinding. But it wasn't the worst pain. The worst of it was the feeling of no longer being able to continue, to pursue the fight, to finish his opponent, and the threat to his loved ones. Molotov felt failure surge through him, redoubling and making him sick with grief. His life was ebbing out, he knew that. Even though he had never been injured in such a way, he knew that he was bleeding internally, and it would soon kill him. The despair in him was so terrible it completely overwhelmed the pain, and threatened to drown him before his body died. John shared that despair. Hell, it was a reflection of the despair he had lived with for years. And without thinking, he reached out to his friend and comrade. He didn't know what he would or could do. He only knew he could not allow Moji to die alone. That was when John felt Sarah with him, and felt her reaching to Moji, too. And together they somehow touched him. Fear not, brave one. He heard in his mind, and knew that Molotov heard it, too. This is not an end, and your comrades will take up the fight and never forget you. See, the door. It waits to welcome you. John couldn't see it, but he sensed Molotov could, and sensed that Sarah had muted the Russian's pain as well. He willed Moji to hear him. This was... It was anything but natural for him, but he willed Molotov to sense that he was there too, a friend that he trusted, and that the friend was letting him know that this was... all right, and that it was okay for him to let go. The despair ebbed, then drained away. John tried to continue willing that support for his comrade. He thought he was succeeding when there was a strangled shout, full of fury and pain and desperation, and Moji turned his head. 
It was Natalia, staring at her Bolshoi brat with horror and outrage. She will finish this, I pledge you, Sarah breathed gently. I know this. It is her nature. She only knows how to succeed. Behind that single thought, John and Sarah felt everything but Molotov. No, his call sign was too impersonal for such a deeply personal interaction. Everything Moji felt for Natalia. His Sestra. But more than that, the love of his life. He was the perfect Russian metahuman, darling of the media, a ladies' man as well as a respectable gentleman when the situation dictated, a dedicated soldier but also well-rounded and well-read. And the only thing he had ever wanted was Natalia's love and companionship wanted it enough to stand by her even if it was only to be as her brother. When she was right, when she was wrong, when she wouldn't take bribes like everyone else, when she fought for truth, when she was exiled to America, when she was certain to die, he would always stand by her. He stood by her now, for who she was, for the woman he loved her as. A smile creased Moji's cracked and bleeding lips, and he felt no more pain, only comfort and certainty. Vengeance. This will not go unanswered. There will be rest. Distantly, John felt another surge of terrible grief. Vicky. The part of him that was still in Atlanta, detached but still whole, moved the two steps it took to reach her, took a shoulder in each hand, and squeezed them gently, reassuringly, as she shook with silent sobs. He felt himself saying, We're with him. He's not alone. And knew the words were his and Sarah's both. So surreal. Needed. Necessary. Kindness always is. Moji's camera registered workers' champion picking him up until his battered face was level with the old Russian's which showed no more emotion than it had before. There was movement as Worker's Champion pulled back his arm. The feed cut out, leaving only Red Savior's feed, as Natalia watched the man she and Moji had called Uncle murder her best friend in the coldest of cold blood. John and Sarah both felt Moji move on. It wasn't violent, like his death. More of a letting go. There wasn't the despair or grief that he had been feeling. Still that calm satisfaction. In that final moment, a single thought that encompassed so much more emotion rang out in both of their heads. I love you, Sestra. Keep going. Then the moment was gone. John and Sarah both fell to the floor at the same time. John behind Vicky's chair, Sarah still in the doorway. They both felt as if they had run back-to-back -back marathons on no sleep while carrying double their body weight in rucksacks. This was another first for them, and another extension of their new powers. Vicky wasn't the only one with tears streaming down her cheeks. Both John and Sarah were crying, with no shame in it. They had not just watched, 
but felt a loved one, a comrade, pass on. Vicky was already talking again. After all, she had a job to do and couldn't focus on any one crisis. No one had to tell her she had to go on, and that what she felt didn't matter. Already she was telling Bella what was happening and breaking that off to snap directions at Ramona and Merck. John was the first to talk, murmuring gently to Sarah. We still have a job to do, too, darling. Up and at him. There wasn't any feeling behind his words, despite trying to sound sanguine. Still, Sarah nodded her assent and took his hand when he offered it to help her up from the floor. It was everything that they could do to push their senses of the futures out far enough to cover the building. They were still vaguely aware of Vicky, coordinating the evacuation of Metis in the background. Like John had said, they all had a job to do, so the two of them focused on theirs, so that Vicky could concentrate on hers. They had regained some of their strength as the minutes stretched on. They kept their focus on the building, making sure that nothing untoward was going to happen to Vicky. Still, from what they could hear, the news was not good. Arthur Chang, dead, as well as a number of the delegates. Thousands of medicines had also been lost. The city, destroyed. Most of their people, save for poor Moji, had escaped, though none of them were unscathed. It was going to be a long, long day. You've been listening to The Secret World Chronicle, written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Narration and production by Veronica Jaguer at VoicesByVeronica.com. Quality review and production assistance by Laura Nicole at ResonantMoon.com. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series is released under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 license. For previous episodes, check out SecretWorldChronicle.com. The Secret World Chronicle is published by the fantastic people at Bayon Books. Find fellow SWC fans on the Facebook group at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Secret World Chronicle. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>